from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. He'd look at me and he'd say, so my fine tenured professor friend, what have you been working on? Just like that. It was, and whatever I'd been doing just seemed trivial compared to what he'd done. And it was, you know, I would mumble something, but he was quite, it was quite remarkable that he would, he had the ability to make people laugh even when he was dying. And he would be exhausted at the end of it, trying to put these paragraphs, these sentences and paragraphs together. Then he would take a break. Um, get his food, he was, his food came through a portal in his stomach, um, and take a nap, and then he would go back in the afternoon and get back on and he'd do it for another two hours. I'm Sarah Fenske. Michael Yoakum was a St. Louis native who became a planner for the National Park Service. He worked for 22 years at Yellowstone National Park with shorter stints at Yosemite, Sequoia, and the Grand Canyon. Mike loved the National Park so much, he refused to let his ALS diagnosis stop him from writing a book-length tribute to them. He painstakingly wrote it line by line using just his eyes and an eye-tracking machine. And then he died. That was in the year 2020. But thanks to his family and his friends, that book has now been published. It's called Requiem for America's Best Idea, and it's out now from High Road Books. And joining us today to share this remarkable story is the late Michael Yoakum's longtime friend, Bill Lowry. He's an emeritus professor of political science at Washington University and helped him complete this book. So, Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Bill, take us back. When did you first meet Michael Yoakum? You know, I, I think it was the early 1990s. I believe it was 1994. Um, I was doing research on national parks and how politics affect them. And I went out to Yellowstone to talk to some of the planners there. And Mike was working there. And he was he was very helpful of my project. And he and I stayed in touch over time. I learned that his family was here in St. Louis. And so whenever he came back to town, he would visit with me and my wife. Or when I was out to the parks, either Yellowstone or Yosemite, I would visit with him. So you guys had a lot of different commonalities. I mean, you had been, you did a summer job we at did. the National Park Service yes. back in the day. So were you guys able to explore these parks at all together? You know, we did some. I think, you're right though, sir. We we did have a lot of commonalities. I think both of us were introduced to the parks by our families. As young as young boys, we were taken to, on travel uh, trips to the parks and uh, both of us kind of fell in love with the places and I, I, I moved around quite a bit did a lot of different jobs but I always loved the parks and I always wanted to get back to them Mike he was much more direct he moved he started at Yellowstone I believe when he was 20 20 years old while he was still in college and he worked there he was he he loved it so much he just wanted to stay there forever and he worked year after year there one way or another he, like you said he also had stints in Yosemite Sequoia and Grand Canyon. Um, and when we visited, we would, you know, we didn't do as much hiking in the parks as you would think because we were both busy. He was working and I was trying to do research. 
when he moved back here to St. Louis, we got in quite a few hikes with him and his family. Okay. So he, I mean, you guys had all these, you know, your friendship was kind of growing. He was diagnosed with ALS in 2013. Now he writes in this book, he noticed, quote, odd changes in his body, like, quote, seemingly endless muscle twitching, slurred speech when I was tired, and enhanced tendency to cry. He kind of saw this coming pretty early on. He did. And he, he didn't know exactly what was going on. And one thing, one of the tragic things about ALS is that you, I don't think there's uh, people aren't really sure that they're. It's hard to tell you're getting it, and and there's it's so rare that there's been less science into a diagnosis of ALS. And so when Mike first started noticing these things, he went to see doctors, and they first diagnosed it as anxiety disorder. And Mike knew it was more than that. And I, and as a result, he he his treatment was delayed somewhat, which I think was really unfortunate. Um, when he finally did see some doctors at Stanford that that looked into the, his situation more, they realized that it probably was ALS. They ruled out everything else, and okay. so they decided it was ALS. And I, I, I mean, I think about that sometimes when he, he was – Mike was an incredibly vigorous guy. He was a great backpacker, hiker, um, really good shape, took care of himself. And to get a diagnosis like that, it's just tragedy. It's just tragic. It's heartbreaking. It's so sad. I mean, so a lot of people may know this disease as Lou Gehrig's disease. That's correct. And Mike writes in his book, it was the most feared neurological disorder. There's no cure. There was no real way to stop the progression. How did he share with you this diagnosis? Yeah, I'll never forget. He flew into town. Um, he and my wife, Lynn, and I would get together often for a meal or we'd have him over sometime times and or we'd go to see his parents and <clears throat> Mike flew into town and he said uh, I said do you want to go out to eat and he said no I want to come over and see you guys I want to talk to you and and Lynn and um, he sat and I didn't I could tell it was serious but I didn't know what was going on and he he sat in our dining room and he told us that he'd been diagnosed with ALS and I, I was stunned I, I reacted kind of slowly and I remember my wife gave him a hug and our dog went over and sat next to him because Mike was, he was kind of sobbing. I mean, he was very emotional about it. And finally I recovered enough to give him a hug. And I, I'll never forget what Mike said. He, he, his line was, I almost wish I had cancer because then they would know what to do with this. Mm-hmm. And they, they just didn't with that, with ALS and his, you know, that was 2013 and um, things got worse, of course. And uh, eventually 2014, he moved back here and moved in with his parents. So that was pretty quick after pretty quick. the official diagnosis. He had to leave he had this to leave. place he loved he so much. Was that hard for him? Oh, it was really hard. He he loved, he had this house in Gardner, Montana, right outside Yellowstone that he thought he was going to live in and retire in. And he, even when he was transferred to or promoted to work in Yosemite, he still, I think Yellowstone still was his favorite spot and he wanted to go back there and spend the rest of his life there. So you know, it was it was really hard for him to move, but it was hard for him to give up so many other things. Like I say, he was he loved to hike, he loved to backpack, and within a year or two, he couldn't do those things. We would, you know, we took him on some hikes when he had to use a wheelchair, and it was just so difficult for such an active person to be in a wheelchair. And and things progressed from there beyond the wheelchair. It must so. have been so frustrating for him. Did he get angry? You know, he was Mike was incredible. He um he I think he was frustrated and he would I think he was angry about it sometimes, but he 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 was he had a remarkable ability to keep his focus on what he wanted to do and to keep amazingly this sounds strange but to keep his sense of humor. Hmm. Which is I really surprising. It's hard. <laughs> it was hard. You know, even in the last years of his life we we would go out to visit him and Mike by that point Mike he he, the only thing he could move were his eyes. And so he used his eyes, as you mentioned, he used his eyes to write this book and another book. 
And but he also used it to um, to have conversations with people. So he would form words by picking out letters and then create sentences, and then he could speak to people using a machine like Stephen Hawking used. And so just by kind of directing his eyes, That's right. he could choose which letter, but he had to then spell out every he would. word? He had to spell out every word, and he would create sentences, and then he'd create the, use those sentences to create paragraphs. It would take him like two hours, sometimes two hours, to write a single paragraph. I know it was exhausting. And it was hard for him in conversations because Mike was a great conversationalist, and he like I say, he had a sense of humor, but you, you can imagine what's happening in a conversation. The conversation's going, and he wants to say something, but he has to type out the words. So sometimes Mike would <laughs> he would do this thing where he would he would uh, punch in lines that he wanted to use, and he knew could he could use in the conversation. He would have them ready to go. So we had this thing, we had this running joke actually between us. He would uh, we'd come out and we'd say, "Well, what have you been working on, Mike?" And he'd say, "Well, I've been writing this chapter or this chapter," and 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 then he'd say he'd look at me and he'd say. So my fine tenured professor friend, what have you been working on? Just like that, it was, and whatever I'd been doing just seemed trivial compared to what he'd done. And it was, you know, I would mumble something, but it, it, it was quite, it was quite remarkable that he would. He had the ability to make people laugh even when he was dying, and he, it, it, even though he couldn't move anything else, you could see this little twinkle in his eyes when he was teasing somebody, and it was really cool. It's amazing that twinkle didn't go away. That's, you know, the last thing he had were his eyes, and, and he was using he them. He was using them. It was, it was inspirational. It was, it was, he was the most courageous guy I've ever seen dealing with something like this, and he, um, just the ability to do that, uh, the grace it took to do that is just quite remarkable. And the fact that he, not just this book that, that you right. have helped get across the finish line, he wrote another book he did. after he, his diagnosis. He did. He actually finished, and you're, you're right, Sarah, he, he finished one, and then he wrote a whole other book called Essential Yellowstone with his eyes, and then he did this one with his eyes. And he was just determined to do it. He um, And <clears throat> there's a passage in here where he... He mentions that he just, um, at least with this, the eye tracking machine was really helpful to him because at least then he could use his creative abilities and keep doing something that made him feel worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So he was determined to write these books. He finished the guide to Yellowstone. Yeah. Then he starts writing this book. Did he talk to you about what might happen if he wasn't able to finish it before yes. he was gone? Yes, he did. We um, we talked quite a bit while during that process, and he had me read drafts and. And uh, we would talk about what he was writing in the book. Um, and he did, oh, it must have been maybe a year before he died, he um, he asked me that if he, he, I think he knew he might not make it. He might not be able to finish the book. And he asked me that in that event that he couldn't, if I would do it for him and finish it and make sure it got published. And That's a big responsibility there. That's a big responsibility. There was, but, you know, the thing is, there was no way I was going to say no. I mean, not only did I love Mike, but I love the parks, too. And, I, and this is really important stuff. And I, and I wanted, and I'm also, I've learned more about ALS, and I want people to understand that disease as well. So for me, it was a no-brainer to say, yes, I would do that. And Mike, to his credit, he did... Um, he did all the research and he did nearly all the writing. We did a little bit. I did a little bit of editing and and then uh, with his brothers and a friend, a friend of his named Eric Compass uh, did the maps and with his brothers and his parents and my wife, we put together the photos and and, uh, you know, I lined up a publisher and we had some help from the National Parks Conservation Association. They published an article um, uh, about Mike, a woman named Kate Cyber that 
wrote a really nice article about Mike, and I used that article to help get publishers interested in the book. And so it, Drum up some publicity. Yeah, it's a exactly. great technique. Yeah, yeah, it worked. So there were a number of you kind of working on this after his death. Did this feel like, okay, we're all doing this for Mike? Oh, absolutely it did, and it still does. You know, we have this event tonight, this uh, virtual, rele- uh, uh, virtual release party um, uh, sponsored by Left Bank Books where a bunch of us are talking about the experience with working of Mike, and I think we all did kind of bond on this. And... Um, it was a group effort. You know, every time – it was something I was determined to make sure that it was. So every time there was a decision to be made, even about a photo or an edit or whatever, I would run it by Mike's parents uh, and, or his brothers and make sure everybody was on board. We're talking today to Bill Lowry. He is an emeritus professor of political science at Washington University, a true National Parks enthusiast, and that was also the case for his dear friend Michael Yoakum. Um, Helped finish the book that Michael was working on as he died. This book is called Requiem for America's Best Idea. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back to continue this conversation with Bill. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Our guest today is Bill Lowry. He's an emeritus professor at Washington University, and he's talking about a true labor of love that he worked on, as well as other uh, friends and relatives of Michael Yoakum. Michael was a St. Louis native, grew up in Fenton, um, and ended up spending uh, three decades, really, with the National Park Service, wrote the book Requiem for America's Best Idea. This has now been published posthumously, thanks to Bill and and some of Michael's other friends who helped finish this book. Uh, Mike died of ALS. Now, Mike weaves his diagnosis of ALS into the fate of the Colorado River Plateau. How were these things linked for him? So he, um, you're right, he, he does talk about Colorado River Plateau, particularly in the Grand Canyon. Uh, he focuses on the Grand Canyon, um, Glacier, Olympic, Yellowstone, and Yosemite, the five kind of crown jewels of the national park system. And he talks about how climate change is affecting those places and how it will continue to affect them and get even worse if we don't do something about it soon. For him, for Mike, it was, um, he loved the parks and he, it, he, he didn't just work in them, he lived in them and he, he, he lived for them, I think. And he, um, it, it, for him, he was very worried about what was happening with the parks. And he has a line in the book where he says, if we don't do something about this, my experience will become the universal experience. In other words, his inability to go back to the parks and do the things that he liked to do before he got ALS would be the experience for everybody else, that we wouldn't be able to enjoy these places as we have in the past. So even without a personal disease, the disease afflicting our world. Absolutely. And I think we've seen that. You know, We've seen it even this past year. Uh, for example, my wife and I were going to go out to the 
um, Yellowstone and Glacier in the latter part of the year last year, and the fires were so bad that it was just our friends out there were saying, don't come. Yeah. It's not a good time to do it. And the fires have gotten worse. They're going to get worse because of climate change. Um, it's not just the fires. I mean, it's everything else. You mentioned the Colorado Plateau. The drought there has been so severe that they're already doing triggers for uh, cutbacks in water usage. Uh, and it, it, these things affect everything in the parks. And Mike, he was, he's a very thorough writer, and so he's, he's very careful to be to, to reference all of his points about the parks. And he's, there, there are literally hundreds of sources in here. And he paid a lot of attention to the science, and he's, he writes very carefully about things that are happening there. And when you read the book, you'll see that there are things we all think we know about what's going on in the parks. Like everybody talks about Glacier National Park, how the glaciers may, may be gone by the middle part of this century in a park that's named for Glacier. But when you read the book, you realize there's a lot of other things happening even right now. Just as an example, in Glacier, Mike writes about moose. And moose, you know, a lot of us grew up thinking about moose in very positive ways. They're really cool animals yeah. like Rocky and Bullwinkle. And, but because of climate change, the tick situation in Glacier is terrible. And so moose, literally, they have hundreds of ticks on them at any one time. And that's, I mean, it's obviously devastating to the moose, but that's just one example of how, and I learned that from reading Mike's book. I was going to say, the level of detailed observation in this book, he's not just relying on these sort of sweeping models that, exactly. that people like to take issue with. He's there observing, here's what's happening with this particular species, how this is, is impacting their longevity. You're exactly right. He's incredibly thorough, and I defy, I defy people that still doubt the evidence of climate change to read this book and not say, okay, maybe there's something going on. So I want to uh, read a quote from this book. This is, again, from Michael Yoakum, who lived in these parks for 30 years, closely observed them. Just as wild places throughout the West are being affected by climate change, there are invalids everywhere being affected by debilitating illness, writing about himself there with his ALS. He continues, both are stories of urgency. Just as I don't have much time left, we don't have much time left to protect the parks from the worst of climate change. But they are also stories of contrast. For as much as my affliction is, uh, is of unknown origin. The other is very much self-inflicted. Ultimately, both are stories of loss, the one inexplicable and inexorable, the other unnecessary and still preventable. This story is the book's second purpose. Do you feel like that drove the urgency of him working on this at such great personal cost? Absolutely. You know, letter by letter by letter, no. he was hoping he could reverse the tide. Absolutely. It's great that you picked that out because that's exactly the way Mike felt about it. He, I think Mike had a perspective on this that nobody else could have because he knew he was dying and he knew he couldn't do anything about it. He knew the parks were potentially dying, but he also knew that we could do something about that. So It was interesting to hear. He also wrote about this, this friend of his uh, named Tom. And Tom was somebody that he was introduced to because Tom was diagnosed with ALS, I, I believe a few years before yeah. Mike was. Tom was a climate change denier. Yeah, that's right. But it ended up, Mike kind of had an impact on he Tom's did. life. Mike had an impact on so many people's lives. You're exactly right about Tom. And he, 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 uh, there's a friend of Mike's that's on the panel tonight that never, that tonight that never used to do much hiking or backpacking. Now she does it all the time. She worked, she was a volunteer for ALS. <clears throat> I think Mike affected all of us. And he, he still does. Even after he's gone, he still affects us because we think about things differently than we used to. Um, you're right. The story about Tom is really touching. There's another story in here about a woman that was, diagnosed with ALS, and uh, she, um, hers was so bad that she couldn't even open her eyes. Oh, and yet she told her husband that she wanted to live, even though she couldn't do that. And 
you know, Mike is very sympathetic. He says, I, I don't, how could she deal with that? What does she think about all the time when she can't even open her eyes? It, it, for him, at least he could think about his experiences and his memories of the parks, and that gave him a certain amount of comfort and solace. And he hoped that she had something like that that she could fall back on. Yeah. And that, that was another reason to write the book was because he wants to save these places so that we all have these parks that we can think about and provide us some peace. Yeah, I mean, just as long as he could get the message out to the world, maybe he felt like he was better situated than somebody locked in their own head. That's exactly right. And he was determined to do it. He would literally, um, you were asking me earlier, Sarah, about the way he wrote. And Mike would, he'd get up in the morning and he'd sit in front of his computer for two hours probably, and he would be exhausted at the end of it, trying to put these paragraphs, these sentences and paragraphs together. Then he would take a break. Um, get his food. He was his food came through a portal in his stomach, um, and take a nap, and then he would go back in the afternoon. He'd get back on, and he'd do it for another two hours. And it was just exhausting work. But he was he just he was determined to get this done. And his parents were his caretakers. His parents this were time. great. Jim and Jeannie Yoakum, they are saints. They um, they did just about everything for him during this time that he he couldn't do. And that's um, I got a taste of that. Um, let's see. I guess it was in spring maybe the year before Mike died, that his, his mom had to have some surgery. And, uh, and so they, his dad needed some help in the mornings to get Mike going in the day. And so I was going out there, you know, six in the morning uh, and to help get Mike up, get him dressed. Mike was, <laughs> he never gave in to the disease. He, uh, he was determined that he, if somebody came over to visit him, he wanted to look good. So Mike would literally, I'd go to his closet and I would look at the clothes that Mike had laid out there and I would start picking. I'm not a very good dresser. Mike was. He would, he'd pick out the clothes and I would hold up a shirt and he'd, he'd nod if that was right. He wouldn't nod. I'm sorry. He would raise his eyes if that was right. Mm-hmm. Pants. He, he wanted everything to be right. He also was determined. He took showers. I mean, even when he couldn't move, his dad got him through the shower. And wow. Yeah, his dad and mom did everything for him. It was... Uh, it was really inspirational. Yeah, I mean, the way this family came together. They did. And then the way people came together after the fact for this book. I mean, this is, I guess this is just such a striking story, I think, to have your parents have to go through that. And yet it sounds like they really rose to this challenge. Oh, they absolutely did. They um, they they did everything for him. And, and it was, a it was you know, they would always try to apologize or say thanks to me if I came out to help or whatever I was doing with the book. But, you know, it really was an honor to be involved with it. And so this book, this is such a tribute to these parks uh, that Mike loved so much. You know, the title comes from this quote by the great writer Wallace Stegner, a novelist who really specialized in the West. Quote, national parks are the best idea we ever had. Absolutely American, absolutely democratic. They reflect us at our best rather than our worst. Do you think that idea is now being called into question as our own stewardship has, has led them into this place of peril? That's a great question. Um, I, th- I think it is being, I think it is called, it, we can call it into question because we don't, we're not doing everything that we could for these parks, particularly in terms of the overall question of climate change and trying to do something about that. It is interesting as a political scientist, and I know you are as well, um, it is interesting that parks are one of the few issues on which most people, most Americans agree whether they're Republicans or Democrats, conservatives or liberals. They do care about the parks. At least they like they say they care about the parks. And if I was going to get on my pulpit, I think I would preach to people and say, if you care about the parks, do something about them and do something about climate change. What would you say, I mean, for people who are hearing this and they're saying, yes, I, I want to be a credit to Mike Yoakum's life and to right. this book. Right. Any specific things that you'd suggest? Yeah, a couple, I guess. Uh, uh, one is... Um, 
be in touch with your your politicians, your members of Congress, and make sure that they know that they that they're the parks. We, a lot of people think we've created these parks and they're taken care of. They're not taken care. Of. We always have to keep taking care of them. So keep pressure on politicians to keep supporting parks. They don't. For years, they didn't get enough funding. Just the last couple of years, there have been a couple big bills that have provided some revenue that they really need. But that, but we have to keep that continuing. Um, a second thing is I mentioned National Parks Conservation Association. They're a really good organization if you want to get involved with somebody that cares about parks and is doing a lot of good things for them. And a third thing is, you know, just along the lines of this book, the uh, the ALS Society of St. Louis, ALS Society in general, they need support. I mean, they always need support. This is a disease that's just they're still looking for a cure, and uh, and the more we can do for them, the better. I, I should mention too, Sarah, that the proceeds. Mike's parents, just to give you an example of how gracious they are, they all any proceeds they get from the sale of this book are going to fight ALS. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So bringing it back to Mike here, uh, Mike died. This was February 29th, 2020. That date is is somewhat special in a some leap ways. Day. Yeah, yeah. A leap day, a rare day for a rare person. Yeah, a rare day for a rare person. Uh, what do you know about his his final hours or his final day? Uh, the only thing I know, Sarah, is that he his dad, um, like I say, Mike would get up in the morning. He'd sit in front of the computer and try and write. And his 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 dad and his mom were so used to that they they knew he was there and I think one morning his dad just looked over there and realized Mike was not writing and he was sitting at the computer and he he looked at, it happened to be that Mike was sending writing an email to me um, I think I mentioned maybe a, a gentle reminder that he did ask me to finish this if he couldn't and so this was on his mind yes, in his final email it was it was yeah. Which is very touching. Yeah. It is touching. And at that point, boy, that is a responsibility you cannot duck. I could not. Nope. There was, I wanted to make sure we got this done, and I, I'm very proud of what we've done. So you end your foreword to this book with what you believe are the last words that Mike ever wrote. And I found these so touching, reading this foreword in this book. Can you read those for us today? I'd be happy to. Thanks, sir. Um, I enjoy being outside, sitting and reading in the extensive gardens my folks have around their house. The property next door is thickly wooded, so we see deer on a regular basis and an occasional red fox or raccoon. Birds like it here, too, finding feeders and houses scattered about. One afternoon, I was sitting beside a birdhouse that was busy with house wrens bringing food to their chicks. I thought I saw one chick fledge, and soon its nestmate did as well, right onto my armrest. Its maiden flight wasn't long and came with a rough landing, for it was on its side with its claw around my finger. It righted itself and then looked right at me, then flew away. Such a neat encounter with nature's wild, wildness right in the backyard. Will we act in time to give future generations the same experiences? That's such an ending there. That's Mike Yoakum. So as people are thinking about this book, thinking about maybe coming to this event tonight, what would you want us to remember about Mike and his life? Hmm. That he was a... he. I, he Mike dealt with his fate with grace and courage and... Um, and a, a willingness to think uh, beyond himself. And uh, I think we all should do that. And caring for our national parks, what better way to do that? Bill Lowry, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sarah, for having me.
And Bill is an emeritus professor of political science at Washington University. That book is Requiem for America's Best Idea, National Parks in the Era of Climate Change. We have a link on our website. That's stlonair.show. We also have information at that same post um, about this event that's happening tonight. That's 7 p.m. Left Bank Books is hosting a virtual book launch and also a celebration of Michael Yoakum's life. It's in conjunction with the Environmental Studies Program at Arts and Sciences at WashU, the National Parks Conservation Association, and the St. Louis Regional Chapter of the ALS Association. Today's episode was produced by Emily Woodbury with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.